Turn with me, if you will, to Luke 15. So we finish up this chapter this morning. Luke 15, we'll look at verses 25 to 32 uh, today. Unlike some of you, I'm not a very good uh, storyteller. I I love a good story. I just can't retell it very well, it seems. Sometimes uh, thinking that the punchline is all that really matters, I fail to set up the thing, and so the punchline kind of falls flat. Or even worse, I remember all the wonderful details of the story and get to the punchline, and I can't quite get it right, and the whole point is lost. Unfortunately, that's exactly what many people have done with Jesus' magnificent story here in Luke 15. They've remembered all the moving details of the story, but they have forgotten or perhaps just missed the punchline. And the result is quite a different story than Jesus imagined when he told this. So today we come finally to the punchline, the point of the whole chapter, here in verses 25 to 32. I'm going to pick up and read this whole parable of the lost son, beginning with verse 11, but we'll only consider the last portion, beginning with verse 25. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Right up front, let me acknowledge my deep um, uh, indebtedness to, first of all, a sermon by Edmund Clowney, a professor of mine in seminary, and then the sermons and the whole book written by Tim Keller, inspired by that sermon uh, from Ed Clowney. These two men, uh, Clowney and Keller, more than any of the other commentaries that I've read, seem to understand this parable. I commend their work to you. A little book that uh, Keller's written called The Prodigal God. You can read it in an evening. Just a wonderful book about this whole uh, uh, parable. Let me just boil down uh, what this text has to say to us, though, in, in, in two points. The first is this. Goodness Goodness keeps us from God. Goodness keeps us from God. This parable is probably one of the most dearly loved passages in the Bible. It's, it is so popular, it's actually become part of our culture. There are phrases from this parable that appear in our culture that people don't even know where they came from. And many, many, many people know this story if they don't know a thing else that the Bible has to say. And when people hear this story, they are moved, uh, emotionally affected by the forgiveness and compassion shown to the prodigal son. But originally, that response was not what happened with this parable. It is quite certain that almost no one listening to this parable at the time liked what he heard. We identify with the younger brother and rejoice in forgiveness and restoration. But in that culture, the original hearers would have heard the humiliation of the father and would have been scandalized. How can a son destroy the family estate, make a fool of his father, and have the audacity to come and show his face again back in town? And why? Why on earth would the father humiliate and debase himself by receiving such a prodigal back? This is one of the most scandalous stories ever told. But unlike what we tend to hear, the story is not primarily about the prodigal son. It's been misnamed. The story is really more about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the good people, the best of the best people, the most pious people who are represented in this parable as the elder brother. This parable is not primarily an invitation to the lost and the wayward to come home with the promise of forgiveness and restoration, though, though it is that. It is primarily an in-your-face warning to the Pharisees and to us that those who think they have it all together are actually more lost than the wayward parable, uh, prodigal. Our goodness keeps us from God. Let me explain when the prodigal son returned, the father received him immediately and uh, uh, threw a party to celebrate his term. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field working and only learned about his brother when he returned home to the sound of music and dancing going on. 
He inquired of one of his servants what's going on and was told of his brother's return and his father's celebration. But the elder brother did not share the joy. In fact, he got so angry, he refused to go in. He refused to participate. So what's Jesus' point? What's he telling us about this older brother? I think Jesus is showing us that the older, faithful brother was just as lost as the renegade younger brother. Remember, we talked last week, sin is relational. We saw this in our first point last week. Sin wants the Father's things, but not the Father. Well, here it is again, in a different way. The elder brother also wants the Father's things, but not the Father. Oh, these brothers are very different. The younger brother was defiant and restless. The older brother was compliant and hardworking. But in another way, they were just the same. The younger brother only wanted his share of the inheritance, and he resented the father for his authority over him. He chafed under that and wanted to get out of there. But the elder brother also only wanted the family inheritance, and he resented the father even while he stayed and obeyed the father. You see, the elder brother was just as lost as the lost sheep, or the lost coin, or the lost prodigal son. He was lost. He was alienated from his father, even while he diligently served under the father's authority. So how do we know that? How do we know that's what's going on with the, old, uh, with the older brother? Well, he tells us. He tells us by his responses to his father. Listen how he answers his father who comes to invite him to come into the party. First, he starts speaking to his father with the expression translated here, look. Now, that expression is equivalent to us saying, look here, or now you listen up, or I want, I want you to pay attention here. This is a demeaning, demanding way to speak to someone. You do not speak to your father this way. But you see, this son resented his father, even while he served him. He went on, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed any of your orders. Oh, really? Slaving? Orders? That's an interesting way to describe a partnership between a father and a son. Well, the son, you see, was obeying, but he only saw himself as an unwilling servant, an unwilling slave doing hard time, not as a dearly loved son. Oh, he's lost. He's alienated from his father, even while he's obeying his father's orders. And you see, when you feel that you've given more than your share of obedience, what happens? Well, you begin to feel like I'm owed something then. And that's exactly what he said next, verse 29. You never even gave me a young goat, but you killed a fatted calf for him. 
Now, a young goat was nothing compared to the fatted calf. It was like a hamburger versus a steak. The older brother saying, I deserve more than he does. I have a right to better treatment than he gets. Why? Because I earned it. I obeyed. I slaved for you. I sucked it up year after year and did the right thing while he was out running around. How dare you treat him better than you treat me? This is a son lost from his father, accusing his father of injustice. It might sound familiar to us, actually. I did everything God said, and he let me down. I trusted him, and he didn't come through for me. I was faithful to him. And he blessed somebody else who was not faithful more than he blessed me. You see, that's the language of someone who wants God's things, but not God. For why did you obey? Just to get God's stuff? If you obeyed out of love for the Father, his love is its own reward. But if you obeyed in order to acquire rights that allow you to give you leverage to manipulate God for your own pleasure, then your obedience is the very thing that stands between you and God. This older brother goes on, verse 30, he says, This son of yours, that son is his brother. He won't even bring himself to say the word. In fact, he never says father either, though the prodigal says father repeatedly. And he never says brother, though the father speaks of his brother repeatedly. There's a man who's filled with disdain for his brother and filled with resentment toward his father for still loving that brother. And he is so angry that he will not only not come in and join the feast, he will humiliate, publicly humiliate his father by forcing him to excuse himself from his guest in the middle of his own party and come out to try to console this other brother who refuses to be consoled. This son is as lost as the younger son. Oh, he's never physically separated himself from his father, but he's just as distant. He lives in the father's house, and he works the father's business, and he obeys the father's orders, but he really doesn't care one bit about his father. He doesn't understand his father's love. He hates his father's mercy. He wants no part of his father's celebration. He knows nothing, and he cares nothing about what brings joy to his father. You see, it's possible, folks, to be fully engrossed in God's business, to be in the ministry, to be a teacher of God's word, to be one of the most pious people in the community, as the Pharisees were, and yet to be far, far from the Father. 
totally estranged even while you serve him. Jesus said something like that to Philip in John 14. Philip, don't you even know me? Don't you even know me? After I've been here with you for such a long time? In fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus warns about people like this facing judgment. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Our goodness stands in our way before God. I, I must admit, as I studied this passage this week, I was rocked back on my heels a bit. I know what it's like to be the older brother. I know this idea that faithfulness to God is a really heavy burden to bear. And after I have given and given and borne this burden of faithfulness, God had better not bless somebody else more than he blesses me. Somebody who didn't lift a finger. I know this experience of begrudging faithfulness, even while your heart's far from the Father. I know this feeling of entitlement, of rights, that comes with diligent obedience. I've been there. I've been the older brother. And maybe you are too. Perhaps beneath your faithful church commitment lies a sense of superiority which disdains dirty, broken people and wants no part of bringing them into your church. In fact, maybe your faithful obedience has made you resent God himself for not dealing with you as you deserve, considering what you've done, not giving you what you needed. Maybe you need to repent of your goodness as much as your badness. For your goodness, self-made righteousness, will keep you apart from God more readily than your blatant rebellion. But such alienation is what, what, not what the Father wants for us. Which brings us to our second point. The Father invites you to his feast. The Father invites you to his feast. The end of this parable is as, as surprising as the beginning. We tend to think of Jesus dealing with the scribes and Pharisees as a rather harsh. He welcomes sinners but pronounces curses and woes on the Pharisees. And clearly here he is speaking to the Pharisees. But in this parable, the father is dealing with the elder brother was as tender as his dealing with the younger brother. It was different, but it was filled with just as much love and grace. He welcomed with open arms the younger brother who came to repent, and he entreated the elder brother with the same tenderness though he would not repent. 
The elder son may not call him father, but the father called him my son, my child. A term of tender endearment. The elder son may never call his brother, brother, but it didn't change anything. The father still speaks of this brother of yours. The father does not easily let his son step away. He persistently invites him to come inside and share in the feast. Indeed, the father's grace demanded this celebration. If there's nothing to conversion but someone turning over a new leaf, then we might send him a note of congratulations for the decision they made and, and call it good. But the father understood that what had taken place was nothing short of a resurrection. His son, who had been dead, was alive again. God had given him back as certainly as if he were rotting in the ground. Therefore, there was a divine necessity about the celebration. It reminds me of the parable Jesus told just in the, in the, in the chapter before. A feast of the kingdom is such a supernatural reality that people must be compelled to come if necessary. For it's not just another dinner party. It's the family Thanksgiving. It's Christmas Day. It's the marriage feast. When God reclaimed such lost lives, the family must join the party. And so this chapter ends where it began. In the beginning, Jesus was being criticized for feasting with sinners. And now by the use of these parables, Jesus has challenged the Pharisees' sense of moral superiority, showing them to be just as lost as those sinners, and now calls them to come and join the feast with sinners themselves. And then interestingly, the parable ends rather abruptly. Did the elder brother ever go in? Jesus never said. That is undoubtedly intentional. He leaves the question open to the Pharisees to whom he was speaking. Surely they know he has portrayed them as the elder brother. So will they or will they not? join the feast. And of course the question is left open for us too, especially today as we come to the Lord's table. As long as we feel superior, we ought not be coming to the Lord's table. This table involves feasting with sinners, with the low life, with the nobodies. That's whom God has claimed. As long as we resent our brothers, we dare not come. For you cannot know the love of the Father if you won't love his Son. As long as we feel righteous by our own efforts, we cannot come. For this is a feast of grace. This is the holy body and blood of the Savior shed for sinners. Still the Father entreats us to come. For the lost has been found, and the dead is now alive, and the lost and the dead includes us. (laughs) 
Last week we closed with the thought of what the older brother might have been. That's a good way to finish again today. The older brother in the parable who thought himself so righteous had as many problems as the younger brother who was openly rebellious. But what should the older brother have been? What should he have done? What would it look like if he did share the father's heart and love the father more than he loved himself? Well, perhaps he too would have been searching the horizon looking for the sun and would have beat his father out to meet the brother. Surely he would have been leading the celebration for a brother returned. But he might have done even more. Long ago he might have said, Father, I need to go. I'm going to find my brother and bring him home to you. Dr. Ed Clowney, preaching on this text, makes this point by telling the true story about a man named Donald Dawson, a story recorded in Life magazine back in 1965. Don Dawson had a brother named Daniel whose plane was shot down over Vietnam in the early days of that war. And he was listed, like so many others, as missing in action. That was not a good enough resolution for Don Dawson, his brother. And so this brother sold everything he owned to buy passage to Vietnam. And there, though warned by the American military not to do so, he journeyed out into the jungle to find the villages near where his brother had gone down. Everywhere he went, he passed out leaflets offering a reward for information about his brother, posted them on trees in those dangerous Viet Cong infested areas. He was simply known as the brother. He went willingly, intending to offer himself as a substitute if his brother was being held captive, or to bring his brother home if possible or to die trying, if necessary. And you see, that's what our elder brother did. We come to this table to celebrate the fact that in order to receive us back to the Father, Jesus laid down his life as a substitute. And now because of him, the Father invites us and treats us to come. We who are rebellious prodigals, broken and filthy and desperately in need of grace, and we who are angry, resentment-filled, self-righteous elder brothers, also desperately in need of grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. And in reality, we probably vacillate between being the prodigal son and being the elder brother. But what we share in common with them is that we too tend to want your stuff, to want your blessing, to use you 
but to not really care that much about what matters to you. So we thank you for our elder brother Jesus who has come to save us and to change us and to renew us. And we thank you for the promise of your grace to us in him. Lord, may we run back to you. May we come in and celebrate your grace to us and to others, sinners just like us. In his name we pray, amen.